Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. High seas, high stakes, deep oceans. The world came to Vancouver over the last several days to talk about safeguarding the world's seas and seabeds. And on the last day, Canada announced it's in favour of what amounts to a moratorium on deep ocean mining. Our economic advancement cannot come at the cost of the health of our oceans. It's another blow to the Canadian company leading the campaign to extract so-called rare minerals from the sea floor. Minerals that would be used to transition away from fossil fuels. So maybe it's not a surprise to hear the head of the company, Jared Barron, sound as though he's the victim of growing opposition to his plans. As you get closer to commercialization, then more people come out of the woodwork. Why do you think that is? Well, because I think activists tend to hunt in packs. Later, we'll talk about a different plan for protecting part of the ocean from the consequences of climate change. It's something Canada and coastal First Nations are supporting, though it too isn't without critics who fear a loss of jobs. And don't say there's nothing poetic about climate change. Today you'll hear why that isn't true, and why we know that while words can divide people, even nations, they can also move people to tears, to applause, and to action. Welcome to What on Earth? We bring you a world of climate solutions. I'm Laura Lynch. Those are the sounds of protesters outside the International Marine Protected Areas Congress gathering in Vancouver, speaking out against deep sea mining. From activists to scientists and politicians, there's growing concern about proposals to suck up minerals from the depths of the ocean. Of particular concern is a four and a half square kilometer stretch of the Pacific Ocean between Hawaii and Mexico. It's called the Clarion Clipperton Zone. Vancouver-based The Metals Company wants to harvest polymetallic nodules that are sitting on the sea floor. The small rocks contain metals used for things like electric vehicles and solar panels and are key to shifting away from fossil fuels. The company has only been able to explore the area so far. It's awaiting a decision from the International Seabed Authority. That's a body established under the UN's Convention on the Law of the Sea. The decision is about whether and how it can go ahead with a full-fledged mining operation. Jared Barron is the CEO of the Metals Company. Hello. Hi. Why? I'm delighted to join you. I'm glad you're here. Why is your company interested in mining this area of the Pacific Ocean for those small rocks? We're going to need a lot of metals to transition away from fossil fuels. And that's because... Metals are needed to build batteries, they're needed to build infrastructure, 
And as we slow down our dependency on fossil fuels, we're going to need a whole lot more of these metals to be extracted. And so if we look at the long-term vision, we believe that we are heading towards circularity. We believe that in the future that we will be able to slow down extractive industries. But before we get there, we're going to need to inject a lot more metals into the system so they can be recycled. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is where should those metals come from and where can the lightest planetary and human touch result? Okay, I think you've, you've set up everything quite well here. Uh, recently, France's parliament and its president, Emmanuel Macron, called for a moratorium on deep sea mining. You're calling it the method with the lightest touch. Um, it's the latest nation to make that call because they're lighting a, citing a lack of scientific research into the environment and impact, saying nobody knows if it's actually the lightest touch. So why move forward? You know, we were surprised by the move by France because it was only 18 months ago that the same president uh, had put aside some hundreds of millions of euros to fast track the development of their ocean metal license areas. Of course, we need more science to better understand. And the science has been underway since the 1960s. In the last decade, the metals company has been leading the charge to better understand the impacts of collecting our polymetallic nodules and turning them into battery metals. And, and I think it's really starting to dawn on people that raw materials come with impacts. You know, there is no such thing as a zero impact supply. The question is, what are these sets of impacts and how do they compare against the known alternatives of land-based metal extraction? I hear what you're saying, but but I just I want to stay under the sea for the moment, if, as it were, um, and talk about what you're hoping to do. Because I think the point is being made that there simply isn't enough knowledge about the impact it will have. And you're suggesting that's true. No, I'm suggesting that's wrong. I'm suggesting that since the 1960s, we have been studying this part of the seafloor. And we're not talking about the entire ocean. We're very fortunate that the area we are focused on is known as the clarion clipperton zone. It's an area of high concentration of these polymetallic nodules about a thousand miles off the coast of Mexico in the Pacific Ocean. And they form with very high abundance of nickel and copper and cobalt and manganese. And they form in, in these nodules, which literally lie like golf balls on a driving range. And there are no plants. And most of the fauna is in the form of bacteria that is living amongst the sediment. And so it makes sense that we think about, you know, where should we carry out extractive industries? Well, we, we certainly should carry out uh, them in the areas that create the least impacts. I wanted you to listen to a clip from Craig Smith, who's a deep sea ecologist. and He's a professor emeritus at the University of Hawaii. This is part of what he said in an interview with the CBC in 2022. The nodules themselves, they're geologic structures, so they take millions of years to regenerate. So if you go out and remove nodules over tens or hundreds of thousands of square kilometers, the habitat for the nodule-specific fauna will be gone for millions of years. So this is essential permanent habitat destruction. Now that seems to clash directly with what you're saying, his concern that extracting the rocks will cause destruction of a deep sea ecosystem. 
I don't argue with that at all. There is no such thing as a zero impact. The question is, what are our impacts and how do they compare against the known alternative sets of impacts? I guess the point, though, of people like Craig Smith and, and others who are marine biologists, such as Diva Arman from Trinidad and Tobago, is that they don't know all of what is down there, that there is biodiversity, that they do discover something new every time they go down there. And they say if there's not enough known, then you don't know whether you will be harming biodiversity. Well, if I can extrapolate that idea that there is not enough known, yes, we often hear that there are new species being discovered and the same is the case on land. And the reason why species discovery continues in the deep ocean is because it's, it's an area that is newly explored. We study these organisms that are living in the sediment because, for example, where we operate, it's in an area known as the abyssal zone. It's an area where, as I mentioned, there is no plants, um, so no flora at all, and most of the fauna lives in the sediment in the form of bacteria. Now, if we translate that same thinking to land, we don't even study those organisms on land because there is so much life living above the ground. So we don't study what's in the soil when we come to do an environmental impact assessment. And so this is a journey of discovery. But I, and I think that... I suppose the corollary, again, to what you're saying when you, make it, when you compare it to land is that, is that mining on land is heavily regulated and there are environmental assessments done and we don't yet have any regulatory framework or environmental impact assessment framework for what you want to do. Well, I, I would argue with that notion because if you look at the land mining and oil and gas industries, they began and then they tried to regulate them. When it comes to the deep ocean, the International Seabed Authority was established in 1994. So here we are, 2022, and yet there has been no deep sea mining. So we have been regulated for a very long period before the activity actually gets started. And I think that the, the nature of the regulator, the International Seabed Authority, is made up of 167 member countries plus the European Union. And they represent the nations of the world who are putting in place a regulatory set of guidelines to allow the development of this industry while at the same time protecting the marine environment. But you, you still are waiting for the International Seabed Authority to establish regulations for it. And that's supposed to be, we heard by July, although that's not clear whether that's an actual real deadline or a technicality. If it does move ahead, what would a plan of work mean for you? What would the company do next? Well, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea was established, uh, was agreed in 1982. And that convention, the Convention of the Law of the Sea, um, mandated the ISA to put in place exploration and exploitation regulations while protecting the marine environment. Now, the exploration regulations were agreed in 2001. And we were on track to have those exploitation regulations agreed in the middle of 2020, but then arrived COVID, and so everything was delayed. The fact that we're not rushing into this, I think, is something that we should be pleased about. And yes, it's expected that by the end of this year, those regulations will be in place and that will provide the framework for companies like ourselves who've been spending 
hundreds of millions of dollars to better understand the marine environment, to be able to launch our application to move from exploration into an exploitation phase. And if that framework isn't agreed to with by this July so-called deadline, what will you do? Will you wait patiently until it is set in place, no matter how long it takes? What we want to see is progress. And I think that... Um, what does progress you know, mean to you? Progress means heading towards finalization of the exploitation regulations. If you don't get this set of regulations by July or by the end of the year, would you just go ahead anyway? Do you see you have that, that you might have the legal authority to do that? That's not our modus operandi. We see sufficient progress that we don't think that's going to be an eventuality. I just want to talk to you about what I've noticed um, in, in this sort of reaction to what your company wants to do. Um, a few years ago, your company was getting pretty positive reactions from people that, that appears to have been changing more recently with the protests, calls for a moratorium, scientists who have been critical of your plans. I'm, I'm wondering what that's been like for you. You seem to be riding high, and it seems to not be such an easy ride anymore. Look, I think that as you get closer to commercialization, then more people come out of the woodwork. Um, Why do you think that is? Same- Well, because I think activists tend to hunt in packs. We only need to go back and look at industries like the nuclear industry, where activists, many of which were involved uh, in nuclear, we see them turning up in this industry. Um, They think that degrowth or, you know, just will come up with a magical cure to these problems down the track. And it doesn't work that way. But it's not just I mean, it's not just activists. I mean, we're also talking about politicians. We're talking about scientists. But that's where companies like ourselves have to continue to back science-based evidence. And I'm very confident. As for example, I, I, if if you go to our website, you'll see that you know last year we conducted a very extensive pilot mining campaign where we, we had a, one of our production vessels, the Hidden Gem, at sea for four months. We had a second vessel uh, that was out there filled with scientists monitoring the activities. We monitored the area before we started harvesting nodules. We monitored the area whilst we were harvesting nodules. And then we stayed behind and monitored the area post-harvesting nodules. We will be publishing the results of these trials throughout the course of 2023. And they, those results will form the substance of our environmental impact uh, assessment. And if people are genuinely serious about wanting the best outcome, then people should be embracing the things that we're doing. I remember I read that you once said you haven't seen anything that would stop you from from doing this. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you have heard since then or could see that would ever cause you and your company to halt your plans and your hopes to mine the seabed? Well, that commitment remains. If we ever saw something that gave us a, uh, a reason to say this may not be the best thing from a planetary perspective, then we, would, then we would pause. We would change our approach. That's the benefit of all of this science, to get more accurate answers. So science-based evidence is what we need to depend on. We do not need to depend on uh, speculation because at the end of the day, you know, that 
comes down to who has the loudest voice. And that is not necessarily in the best interest of the planet that you and I find ourselves living on. Well, I'm going to get you to, to speculate for me right now. <laughs> What's your best bet on when you believe your uh, seabed tractors, for want of a better script, description, are going to be down there vacuuming up these uh, polymetallic nodules? In, in the purpose, well, for the purpose of harvesting, not for exploration or for testing, for the real purpose of harvesting them for use. Well, we, we still are targeting to have our first uh, collectors on the seafloor before the end of 2024. All right. We will, we will be watching to see what happens. Gerard Baron, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. My pleasure. After that conversation, Canada's Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson announced what he called, in effect, a moratorium on ocean mining in Canada's waters, emphasizing the importance of what he labels ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Goals. Our need for critical minerals and other resources did not override our obligation for science-based decision-making and high ESG standards. This statement makes clear our position our economic advancement cannot come at the cost of the health of our oceans. That is why we are saying today that the government will not permit seabed mining within areas under our jurisdiction in the absence of a rigorous, comprehensive, science-based regulatory structure. So that's what Wilkinson had to say about mining in Canadian waters. But the metals company is looking to operate in international waters. Wilkinson says Canada takes the same position internationally, adding, and this is a quote, it is effectively a moratorium until we know what we need to know to inform decisions about seabed mining going forward. We asked the metals company for a response to these latest remarks. In an email, it says it's 100% aligned with, and this is a quote, rigorous and comprehensive regulatory structure and that it's looking forward to working with the International Seabed Authority and its member states, which includes Canada. In a statement, the federal NDP said it's encouraging to see the government will not be authorizing seabed mining in Canada's waters until more is understood about potential damage and a legal framework is made. And Green Party co-leader Elizabeth May added her objection. There are other places to find rare earth metals and other places to find the um, materials for batteries, for instance, we're moving to electrifying more. And it's a false dichotomy to claim that if you want to have electric cars, you have to rape the ocean floor to do it. So the debate is raging about whether to extract minerals from the ocean floor that would be used for building batteries for EVs, among other things. And as you heard Jared Barron argue, there are also plenty of concerns about how those minerals are extracted on land. It's a dilemma that's coming up time and again. But now, a new perspective and a potential solution. Next week, I'll speak to Thea Riofrancos. She's a political science professor at Providence College and the lead author of a new report called Achieving Zero Emissions with More Mobility and Less Mining. Her message, slow down on getting everyone into an EV and speed up other forms of transit in cities. Then you won't need to mine nearly as much. I want to say at the outset that I am 
extremely in favor and a lot of my advocacy and research and writing has been around the fact that we need a rapid energy transition, right? So I'm 100% on board with a rapid energy transition, which means transforming our energy grid, our transportation system, our housing, you know, and building sector, you know, all of these sectors need to be transformed. So I'm on board with that. What I think is concerning is to conflate the speed at which a particular mine moves forward with climate action, right? You know, I think we need to disentangle those things and first ask the question of what does climate change require of us as a society? It requires a big change in not just the energy system, but a whole host of infrastructures and technologies and built environments that used to be all powered by fossil fuels and now need to be powered and kind of built in a different way. And what a lot of research shows is that it's actually not fastest in terms of addressing at least the transportation sector's contribution to climate crisis to just replace every car with an EV. We do need to electrify the entire transportation sector, but there's a way to do so that involves not replicating the kind of car dependency of the U.S. and I would say a lot of Canada as well, right? This idea that you need to have a car and the only way to get around is to have a car. The fastest way to address the emissions from the transportation sector is to actually get people out of cars, maybe not completely, not entirely, but to address the issue of so many cars on the road in the first place. And you can hear more of Thea Riofranco's ideas about reducing our emissions and cutting back on mining by actually reducing our dependence on cars on next week's show. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Later on the show, we hear how UBC students honour their climate emotions through the spoken word. Poetry, I think, it's a space to imagine new worlds. And I think that is so essential in this fight for a livable planet. That's coming up. Earlier in the show, we heard protests against deep-sea mining at the International Marine Protected Areas Congress held in Vancouver. Now, at that same conference came an announcement from 15 First Nations alongside the federal and provincial governments about an innovative new agreement to protect a huge coastal area. The Great Bear Sea, also referred to as the Northern Shelf Bioregion, some of the world's healthiest remaining seas that are so very important to our people. Together, land and sea are one of the living systems, one of the richest and most productive ecosystems on Earth. And we get to call them home in our territories. That's Christine Smith-Martin. She's the CEO of Coastal First Nations, an alliance of nations on BC's north and central coasts. She's highlighting the creation of a new network of marine protected areas off the coast of British Columbia. 
It's part of the Canadian government's promise to protect 30% of our oceans by 2030. And it's a plan that could have benefits for the climate. I met up with Christine at the conference to find out more. Hi, I'm Laura. Christine is a member of the Haida Nation and the Lakwalams community. She lives here in Vancouver these days, but she has a powerful connection to her home territories. I love being home. Yeah. And the oceans beside those territories, those waters are now part of what's being branded the Great Bear Sea. The oceans that go all the way from Vancouver Island uh, to the tip of Alaska is what we call our territories and it's vast, it's rich in nature ecologically and it's rich in culture and people and a lot of these communities that, uh, that align in those coastal areas and in the river areas all are very tied to the substance that uh, makes up the waters because they provide us our food for the winter and, and it's our responsibility to ensure we take care of them. Uh, do you have a, a specific memory of, of that place? I mean, you, do, you have talked about going home, but is there something really specific that touches you about that about that place? Yeah, I, you know, every year I go home to do my salmon. I jar my salmon for my food in the winter every year. Even though I live in Vancouver, I travel all the way home. When I hear the salmon is running, my job to go home and... Uh, this year I brought my grandchildren home and were able to show them how to jar their own salmons and uh, they got them little tiny little jars and they were able to fill them all up and to me that is really important. I mean that's why I do this work, right? I want to ensure that that's there for their children and their grandchildren. Christine says that sense of responsibility is why the Coastal First Nations led the way on the new plan. Our communities all along the Great Bear Sea have been, for probably the last 12 years, maybe 13 years, have been developing their own marine plans. And uh, they came together in their communities and they developed plans based on very vast traditional knowledge. Um, And they also had a scientific component to that. And they really looked at their territories and tried to find what are the habitat areas that we want to protect and ensure that that continues. What are their cultural significant areas that we want to include in that? And then, you know, if there is any kind of sort of development or any any kind of thing, where would those be? So that the communities who know this, their territories best, they've been... You know, they've been stewarding this for 15,000 years, so they, they have developed these very comprehensive plans. And then from developing those plans, they, they decided regionally that they would get together, and then they developed this First in Canada network. And they've done it on their own, and they've invited the provincial and federal government to be a part of that, but it started in the communities, and the community said, we need to do this. Christine says traditional knowledge played a huge role in creating those plans. The elders shared with them that that site is very important. You know, those clam beds are here, or this site is very specific. We do cultural activities at this, and this is why. So, you know, when we talk about traditional knowledge, we we really, our elders, our communities, the stories that have been passed down to generation to generation as to why we should be protecting those. And very significant 
pieces of our territories and our waters that are really sacred to our people. Spiritual and cultural, but also a food source. Absolutely. And, and you know, that's really concerning. Is one of my, we want to make sure that these habitats are, are protected. You know, we want to ensure that, you know, they have a chance to be able to flourish. And I, I think back to my grandparents' era and, you know, how they talked about the, the, their territories and, and the abundance of food that they had. And we had to take a bold step in this to because if we didn't I my fear is in three to five years we will have nothing. Christine calls it a welcome way forward for conservation in Canada. The difference is that these come from the communities and the communities know their territories best so I think that's what makes it a bit different from the other plans that have happened. Sometimes people are making plans that aren't in those territories these are done by territories and they bring in they bring in the scientists and they bring in the science that uh, will help make their plan complete how do the first nations in in this process view the participation of of the federal government in this as another government yes well i i think you know because these plans were done from our communities and they developed their own network that it's been amazing to see that because they've taken the initiative on their own it's so important to them and they've invited you know the provincial government they've done some amazing work already and now with the federal government uh, joining this table it is a it's a table that is set by the first nations communities and and, and inviting them in so i think that you you know, we all have, we're looking for tools and how we're going to implement this. And that's what the, the next sort of part of the journey is. Let's take a look at our plans. What is it going to take to implement those plans? And it's definitely going to take the provincial and the federal government all to be active participants and in their respective areas figure out, is there policies that need to be changed in order for this to be successful? What are the you know policies? Our guardians, for example, you know they're the ones that are going to be gathering the information, the data, the research, enforcement. So what do we need to change in terms of policies and enforcement? So it's going to take all of them to be sitting at this table, but being very clear that it's the First Nations that are setting that table. Now that the table is set, there's a lot of work to do and thorny questions to answer, including what all of this means for commercial fisheries. We'll get to that in a moment. The Great Bear Sea is less than 2% of the amount of ocean the federal government has promised to protect, but Christine says it's significant nonetheless. It's about the ecological value that we have in those territories. We have some of them, the richest. Um, you know, when you talk, go to a restaurant and they say, you know, we have halibut from Haida Gwaii. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is Haida Gwaii halibut. So, you know, I think that we're not doing this work just for us. We're doing it for all of British Columbians and all of Canadians, uh, everybody that relies and loves the seafood and the oceans that come from our territory. Okay, well, that leads me to my next question, because we know that organizations like the British Columbia Seafood Alliance say this plan will result in lost jobs and income for people in commercial fishing. What do you say to that? Well, you know, we know that the commercial fishermen love the waters in our coast just as much as we do, and we know that their livelihood depends on it. So, you know, the way that we're going to move forward is collaborative in nature. So we're going to ensure that we have um, stakeholders 
like that and being able to feed into um, the implementation of this. And, you know, we know that there are going to be some losses, but we also know that if we don't do anything and we just stay here, everybody is going to be losing in three to five years. And we've already seen them in some of, you know, the Fraser and we certainly don't want that to continue that trend, that trajectory that we're on to continue in the North Coast. Because if it does, none of us are going to be having salmon, halibut, all the foods that we rely on. So we know it's a bold move, but we're, we are going to be ensuring that their voices are heard in this process. But it, it really ends up being a government to government once all this information is collective. And I think that's a good thing because it allows us to really, it's not just government saying what needs to be done. It's, it's the First Nations as well. Christine and other advocates say the Great Bear Sea could be a model for how to create future marine protected areas. And she says there's lessons for the federal government from the way this plan unfolded. Well, I think what they're learning is that in order to be successful, you need to have an Indigenous-led conservation. And it needs to be led by the Indigenous communities. And, and I say that because we know our territories best. We know how to measure success in our territories because we're living there. And so I think this is a learning journey for them. But I, I, I think they're willing to sit down because what what it hasn't worked in the past. So this is a different lens for them. And, uh, you know, our communities and, and coastal First Nations and Namakolis, everybody along the Great Bear Sea, our intention is to be able to share those learnings. But they also have to come to the table and, and know that there is going to be some policies that are going to need to be changed. And that's going to be challenging. We all have really hard work in our areas that we need to do. But I, you know, my hope is that the next marine conference that we have will be presenting about how successful this and this becomes a blueprint for people around the world to start taking these bold changes that we're doing. Now, you heard Christine mention Nanmakolis there. That's an alliance of First Nations that are mostly on Vancouver Island. They're involved with the Great Bear Rainforest and they set up a financial model to fund its protection. We've been able to provide, you know, 1,200 new jobs, businesses, allowed people to transition from perhaps it was logging or any of those extractive industries into ecotourism, into, you know, Airbnbs or what have you in the communities. And and that's been such a great model. It has been uh, duplicated in uh, variations of it, but it's been duplicated in nine different countries. And it's an amazing model and we're very, very proud of it. The communities have it. And, and this is what our, you know, somebody asked me the other day, do you think that your leaders at the time in the Great Bear Rainforest are able to see the success? Do you think they know how successful this would have been? Absolutely. They were very clear. This is where we want to end up and we know how to get there. And they sure did. I don't know any other funding that has been able to years and years later, still hand out dividends to all of our coastal communities. From the Great Bear Rainforest to the Great Bear Sea. Now what happens next? Christine says now the real work begins. How to implement, how to enforce, what policies are needed. It made me wonder though, with this significant accomplishment, does Christine feel a stronger pull to move back home? Oh, I battle that every month. <laughs> I, I go home as much as I can. Obviously, my work brings me, which is a wonderful thing, back to my territories. And 
uh, it's just such a privilege to be in this role and uh, working with our coastal community. I grew up in a coastal community, so I completely understand what those uh, that, that looking and that view of our communities are. And I've been so blessed to be able to take this position. And, and it really allows me to have that drive in me. You know, we've been here 10 o'clock at night every night for, <laughs> I don't even know what day it is. But I do it because this is important work. And our Indigenous communities as well, we know that this is a bold move. But if we don't, what are what's going to happen? You know, in three to five years, we'll be talking about the salmon that don't come back and uh, we have climate change happening, all of those pieces. So I think this is, even though it's a bit scary for for some sectors, there's there's great um, examples along the coast of California. They've done the same thing. We're actually going to be at some point going to talk with them about what they rolled out there and, and what it meant for fishermen and, and what, are, what has come back. So we want to learn as much as we can to make sure we do it right. If you could imagine, say, 25 years into the future, what would be the best thing that you could imagine for your grandchildren? I think the best thing that we could imagine is that this just becomes the norm. That, you know, we are protecting these areas. We have an abundance of fish in there. Uh, we have uh, regulations that have been changed to allow that to come back. And that I don't have to be scared for my great-great-grandchildren that they will never know what it's like to jar the fish that I've jarred with my grandchildren. And so, as I mentioned, we're not just doing this for our communities. We're doing this for, you know, the fishermen, the British Columbians who rely on fish to do their sushi here in Vancouver. Uh, the people who eat in the restaurants that uh, have the halibut from Haida Gwaii. If we don't do this now, we're not going to have that in the future. Christine Smith-Martin, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you heard Christine bring up climate change and explain that First Nations created their conservation plans based on traditional knowledge combined with Western science. I also tracked down one of the scientists involved in that research. He met me outside the conference on a chilly morning right next to Vancouver's harbour. My name is Alejandro Freed, and I am the science coordinator for the Central Coast Indigenous Resource Alliance, which is comprised of the Heltzuk, Kitazuheihees, Nuhalk, and Wikino Nations. Now, because we're in this beautiful spot and we're radio, I wonder if you could describe where we're standing and why we're here. We are at the edge of um, the water in Vancouver Harbor. I'm looking across to the North Shore Mountains, and this is the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Wet'suwet'en nations. And we are, you know, people from all over the world are gathered here to talk about marine protected areas, about um, protecting the oceans. But what really stands out in this conference is there's people from all parts of the world, from indigenous cultures, uh, basically saying, we are part of the solution in a very big way. Our indigenous knowledge systems are key to the protection of the ocean. Now, you are familiar with, very familiar with the Great Bear Sea. Um, you went there kayaking as a young person and then you went back working. Are there any images or um, incidents that really stand out to you from, from all the time you spent there? It is just one of the richest experiences of my life spending time there. I mean, you have this beautiful rainforest, uh, largely unlogged, that, uh, you know, that cover the lower slopes of the mountains that go up into glaciated mountains. I have been up high in those mountains and you can just look out into the sea and see all the shining 
islands, uh, you know, some small and rocky, some very big and forested. But I have also spent a lot of time underwater doing research surveys. And uh, I have just found myself, you know, among huge diversity of species, uh, corals, sponges, rock fishes, you know, you find yourself in clouds of fish. It's just, uh, it's just vibrant. It really pulses with life. What's the most amazing thing you've ever seen underwater there? Oh boy, it's so hard <laughs> to pick one. But you know, in, in, a, in a dive, you often go through the water column, you know, with big schools, you know, like thousands of uh, fish, of yellowtail rockfishes, black rockfishes. And then when you get to the bottom, you know, you have the species that are, tend to be the longer-lived species. So you have this beautiful fish called a yellow-eye rockfish, which is this vibrant orange. And uh, the life history is fascinating. I mean, they can live over 120 years, super important ecologically, an important top predator, and very significant for, uh, culturally from the, for the indigenous peoples. Um, tell me how this marine protected area can affect the health of the ocean as the climate warms. So marine protected areas do something really, Im well, they do a lot of really important things, but a key thing is that they allow uh, the species that are there to grow big and old. Fisheries remove um, the largest, oldest fish selectively. And, and what the importance of keeping big old fish around is that they're disproportionately more fecund than smaller fish. Now, when Alejandro says fecund, it's a word that maybe some people aren't that familiar with. He's talking about big old fish being able to have more babies because of their size. He gave an example, a yellow-eye rockfish that is 80 centimeters in length, and that's about two and a half feet for some of us who are challenged by the metric system. Well, it has about seven times the number of young as a rockfish that's one and a half times smaller. So what does having more babies have to do with climate? If there's a you know, heat wave, something like that, of, that affects the recruitment of the younger fish, having those big old fish around putting out those extra millions and millions of fish every year um, just allows that buffer for recovery of, of, of the system. So what kind of species are meant to be conserved by this? Well, so, so marine protected areas do particularly well for the species that are not largely migratory. So uh, they do very well for uh, the rockfishes that spend uh, most of their lives in the reef, all the corals uh, and sponges, which are also quite important in terms of sequestering carbon, uh, you know, and all the seagrass habitats, which are also quite important for sequestering carbon. Uh, but, but, you know, basically everything that enters that protected space, as long as the management measures are such that fisheries are excluded, uh, you, know, you know, benefits for, for that spatial protection. Um, marine protected areas can also, you talked about this a little bit, marine protected areas can also help mitigate climate change. Tell me how that works. Well, it, 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 the species like, um, you know, sponges, for example, they remove uh, like the glass sponges uh, from studies here in Howe Sound near Vancouver. We know that they remove about a, a gram of uh, carbon per meter square per day. So when you multiply that for the, you know, the very large areas that have sponge reefs, uh, that's quite a bit of carbon removal uh, done by the sponges. And then uh, the other... Can you maybe put that in the context of, say, uh um, a large forest? How does it compare to that? Well, the rate per unit area is actually quite similar to, to that of an old-growth forest in terms of carbon removal.
The Great Bear Sea will include some waters that are already protected and will join them all together with newly protected zones into one huge network. Alejandro says the connectivity will also help those underwater ecosystems as the climate warms. And that's because as the waters warm, we will see species redistributions. I mean, some uh, that are uh, less um, tolerant of warm waters will shift towards nor- more northerly latitudes, which might shift depths. So if, they only, if you had only isolated, not, not interconnected uh, marine protected areas, they might not land in another place of refuge. So that network that creates that extra resilience uh, towards uh, climate change. Doesn't mean it's gonna solve all the issues that come with climate change, but will provide that extra buffer. Yeah, well, that was my question because the oceans are warming, the chemistry is changing. So how much of a difference can marine protected areas really make? Yeah, that is really the question. So the best way I, I can summarize it is that they're gonna be Uh, make things a lot better than if we didn't have it. We are still likely to see some losses due to the uh, warming and acidification that's already in the pipeline. But by maintaining those older, larger, more fecund fish, uh, by providing um, protection for carbon sequestering organisms like glass sponges, uh, they are going to make quite a difference in buffering the impacts of climate change. And at at the same time as we talk about that, we also have the question of, of what this place means for those who fish the area. The BC Seafood Alliance is has concerns about losing jobs, losing food supply. What do you say to them? So I think those are very, very legitimate concerns, and it's important that we work towards uh, a just transition in which um, we start managing fisheries uh, for broader ecosystem um, objectives, such as maintaining large old fish, maintaining uh, you know the integrity of uh, food webs, and that will mean um, lessening the rate of fishing. But there's also examples from other parts of the world in which uh, there. The, the amount of money that can be made by a unit of biomass extracted can be enhanced. Like for example, right now processors um, typically use only about half the amount of, uh, about 50% of each individual fish. There's examples with Icelandic cod in which they're processing up to 80% of the fish because they're getting uh, secondary products such as uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, fertilizers, they're using the skin for leather. And this has increased the value per unit of fish uh, quite a lot and I think there's a lot of scope for uh, thinking about you know the fishing economy and you know shifting to a value over volume paradigm that I think can uh, keep people working while reducing the rates of fishing. What, What do you think the federal government should learn from the experience of creating this plan? I think Uh, One of the key things that should come out from this plan as a general lesson is just the importance of true reconciliation. And that goes much more beyond uh, conflict resolution. It's about transforming relationships in which indigenous peoples are at the table as equal partners. There's not a power imbalance and that allows them to bring in their indigenous knowledge systems that immediately bring their responsibility towards future generations, their responsibility to the ecosystems, which typically just get a, uh, you know, a very tokenistic check mark in, in, in a lot of processes. And uh, once you bring you know, the governance of indigenous people at an equal footing at the table, uh, I think it really transforms how we view the ecosystems, how we view the sustainability of our economies. Sounds like it's transformed you a bit too. It has changed my life. <laughs> How? Um, 
Well, it has given me a lot of hope. I mean, I, as someone immersed in the climate literature and ecological research, I've gone through my nihilistic periods of thinking that were quite doomed. But once I started working alongside uh, with Indigenous peoples full-time about 10 years ago, it's really given me a sense of possibility of what humans as a, a society as a whole can really be. I mean, we are a lot smarter than we've given ourselves credit for, and we just need the intentionality to make it come together. Alejandro Fried, thank you. Thank you, my pleasure. We've got just a bit of time to catch up on other climate news this week. British Petroleum announced it's pulling back from its plans to get to net zero after a year of record-breaking profits. It came just after UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres issued this condemnation. And I have a special message for fossil fuel producers and their enablers scrambling to expand production and raking in monster profits. If you cannot set a credible course for net zero, with 2025 and 2030 targets covering all your operations, you should not be in business. Your core product is our core problem. We need a renewables revolution, not a self-destructive fossil fuel resurgence. In Alberta, there's word the provincial government is considering providing $100 million in tax credits to oil and gas companies to clean up abandoned wells. It's something companies are supposed to do by law, yet there are thousands that haven't been touched. Critics say it amounts to another subsidy from an industry that's awash in profits. Then there's the matter of potential subsidies for so-called blue hydrogen. It's the kind derived from using fossil fuels to make the clean burning fuel. That's as opposed to green hydrogen made from hydroelectricity or other forms of clean energy. A coalition of climate groups and academics sent a letter to Finance Minister Christian Freeland, urging her to stay away from delivering a tax credit to blue hydrogen producers in the upcoming federal budget. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. When it comes to the conversation about climate change, everyone has a voice. Over the past hour on this show, we've heard from researchers, political leaders, activists, and an entrepreneur. But what about the poets? We will not simply tech our way out of climate crises because modern technology does not hold monopoly over innovation. Rather, we give a long-awaited standing ovation to the indigenous peoples who have protected land, air, water since time immemorial. We don't have to imagine far because the imagining is already there in the wisdom if we only listen instead of control, assimilate, or be dismissive. This is a time for two-eyed seeing. This is a time for deeper listening to our hearts and to those silenced by the system. Those are the words of Pablo Akira Beimler. He's a Vancouver-based slam poet and activist, and you're hearing him performing to a packed house at his alma mater, UBC. People in the crowd are silent, clinging to every word. It's the second annual UBC Climate Slamposium, a meeting of students to share research, activism, and creativity. Pablo likes to weave rhythm and spoken word into the climate justice movement. 
Slam poetry is rooted in community building, it's rooted in activism, it's rooted in black civil rights, it's rooted in marginalized folks coming together in like spaces to like share emotions, share like rage, <laughs> share like love, share like all sorts of things that I think are kind of missing, I think, in a lot of the spheres that we're in, especially in academia. Student Shagorika Hack also believes in sharing emotion through poetry. She's at the aptly named Slam Poesium, patiently waiting for her turn as poets like Pablo perform. Originally from Bangladesh, Shagarika's poetry is motivated by a love for her country. My own country is experiencing record-breaking summers, record-breaking monsoons, and for you know a country that is like smaller than BC with about 200 million people, it is a very shattering, shattering thing to dwell on because the futures are very uncertain. But Shagorika believes a better world is possible. And when she's called upon to perform, she takes her time exuding confidence. What if, this time, there were no borders founded in violence? What if, this time, we know to center land because we are finally listening to the pains of our landlessness? What if, this time, we let our hearts break open and not only apart. What worlds are waiting for us to return to? What poetry? What kindnesses? What stories must we retire about our lives? What othered stories can we tell? We know our worlds are ending because they have ended for so many before and around us already. The apocalypse is unjust by design. What are the languages and systems in your skin? How can we create new ones with each other? Thank you. Her performance moves the audience, the applause rises, then so do the people on their feet cheering her. It's this type of response that keeps Shagarika going. For her, poetry can be transformative, therapeutic, and a climate solution. This essay I return to a lot, which is Audre Lorde's poetry is not a luxury. And she writes a lot about how poetry isn't just about like the written word. It's a matter of survival. Poetry, I think, it's a space to imagine new worlds. And I think that is so essential in, in this fight for a livable planet. And I think of this quote in that essay where she says that the white fathers taught us, I think, therefore I am. But the black mothers in each of us, the poet whispers, I feel, therefore I can be free. And I return to that a lot because I think it is the love, the care, the grief, the joy we hold for our dying planet that will help us move towards more just, more compassionate, more livable futures. Lots to think about there, and that is all for us this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show was put together by associate producer Danielle Piper, Producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.